Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 4. I'm your host, Casey Tigret. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. I have to level with you. Most of the time, I'm excited about our episodes, and um, there's never been an episode I haven't been excited for. I don't want to say it that way. Most of the time, I'm excited to give you these conversations, but there are some where the idea comes, and I don't know if it's going to work, and you know, all you can do is ask. But this is one of those where I'm extremely excited for what we get to do in this episode. I've been blessed to know the poet Padraig Otuma for some time now, and you know, corresponding from a distance, but also uh, a meeting in person and uh, several conversations back and forth. And so as, as I was thinking about this upcoming season four and the pandemic that we've we're still kind of in. I don't know how to talk about that. We're, we're doing something. It's not what it was, but it's not done. Whatever, wherever we are right now, this middle ground, this wilderness, we're still in. As I thought about that, I, I thought about the role that poetry plays in my life and has played as I've worked through this past season. Now, if you're not a poetry person, please do not turn the episode off because I think what you're about to hear might help you understand why poetry can be such a value to us, especially when we don't feel like we have the words for the situation that we're in. In this conversation, Padraig and I did something that I was <laughs> I just I thought might be fun and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but I hope it does for you. It did for me. Uh, Padraig and I shared two poems each that have been impactful for us, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically as we've dealt with the circumstances of this pandemic. We talk a bit about why poetry is important. Uh, we talk a bit about why Padraig sees a connection between poetry and theology. And I think this conversation is rich for us as we try to find words to talk about things that we never thought we'd have to talk about. And so I welcome you to enjoy with me, because I enjoyed the heck out of it, I'm not going to lie to you, to enjoy with me this conversation with poet and theologian Padraig Otuma. Padraig, it is an honor to welcome you back to the podcast. There are not many repeat guests, but <laughs> I'm really glad you agreed to do this. Glad to be back. Thanks, Casey. So the life of a poet, uh, we've been talking a bit before we started recording about all the things that you have going on right now. Describe, describe what the life, what your life as a poet looks like. Um, during COVID times? Sure. <laughs> That's relevant. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose I, I, I write a lot of poetry, I read a lot of poetry, and then you've got to make money. And so um, I, I don't, um, I'm not one of those people who makes a lot of money from poems. So I work in broadcasting with On Being, um, um, presenting Poetry Unbound, and I work as staff theologian as well. So that takes up a glorious amount of time, which I love, and it is a great joy to be part of that project. Um, I do some work with um, Corrie Mela still, um, putting together some resources in public theology for Corrie Mela. 2021 is the centenary of the British partition of Ireland into these two jurisdictions. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, I'm doing a PhD in poetry and, and it's a creative PhD, so lots of the writing uh, is related to that, and lots of the reading is related to that too. Um, it's various readings and talks, 
Um, and I suppose I'm also trying to make sure that I'm reading for the sheer joy of reading, because one of the things that happens when you're focused a lot on reading poems for choosing poems for Poetry Unbound, for instance, is that you're just thinking, oh, let me take notes or let me do that just for the sake of using that poem. Um, and I don't want to only be um, mechanical about reading poetry. I, I want also to read it for the joy of it, for the love of it, and to be moved by it. What is it that what is it that keeps you coming back to poetry? What's within it that continues to to draw you in, to stir you, to challenge you? What is it about poetry that continues to bring you back? Um, I think my whole life is an answer to that in the sense of that I've always read poetry. And so partly it feels at this stage, I mean, I, I probably started learning poetry off by heart at the age of, at the age of five in my first years in school. I'm 45 now. So, um, it feels like it, I couldn't even imagine not reading poetry. Um, there's the music of it. Um, not, I mean, all, all poetry is musical, even the poetry that's discordant. Um, so you can hear the sounds of the words, the, the vowels, the consonants, the emotion, if you're hearing it being um, read or if you're reading it yourself. Um, so there's that that I think is fascinating. Um, I do love language. I'm really interested in what language can mean and how it is that in the English language anyway, with um, 26 little squiggles, what do we do with these 26 squiggles together with, you know, a question mark and an M dash and semicolon and full stop, etc. It's so interesting that entire universes of meaning can be created with um, something as simple as that. Um, I love how poetry can be of its time, but also timeless. I read um, Emily Dickinson and feel like I'm in a conversation with somebody from the 1800s hmm. and um, hope that I can survive the conversation. <laughs> um, uh, and so there's something timeless about um, writing that people for, for millennia have turned to art to poetry, to prose, to form of some kind in order to say, I want to say something meaningful about the world that isn't the final word, but it's not a bad first word. Yeah. It also strikes me that in these little squiggles, the, the major faiths of the world draw their inspiration and wisdom and guidance from words, from writing, yeah. from texts, and, and from a Christian tradition the most familiar book, more than likely, in the entire Christian Bible is the book of Psalms, a book yeah. of poetry. Psalm yeah. 23, perhaps, maybe the most, the, the poem that mo the most people who don't like or don't ascribe to liking poetry actually know by heart. Mm -hmm. And that is, a, that is a fascinating, a yeah. fascinating thing. I am... Um... I'm really interested in how the original poets who were writing what we now call Genesis 1 in the Hebrew Bible, that they turn to form because Genesis 1 is a, a very formal poem in the sense of that it's got these repeated um, chorus lines. It was evening, it was morning, first day, evening, morning, second day, etc. Um, uh, 
But then they also, in terms of the content of the poem, one of the things that they ascribed to the character of God that they were writing and creating was um, words. <laughs> that they used words to describe the power of words coming from a character called, um, uh, is it Elohim or Yahweh? I forget from my theology degree, the name that was given to God in Genesis 1. Um, and that words are put into that mouth, words of creativity you know, with plural pronouns in such a, an interesting way. And what fascinating thing that a poet or poets turned to poetry and poetry about poetry in order to describe how they saw a beginning of a world. What an amazing thing. And it shows that we have been fascinated by the power of language for a long time. If I don't have children, but if I did, and if I were to say to these imaginary children every day that I hate them and that they're worthless, a world would be created. So mm. we know the evil in the possibility of language. And I think one of the things we're constantly trying to do is try to trust in the possibility that language can be creative as well as destructive. Yes. Well, and not to take too much of a diversion, but we in the U.S. this week are thinking very much about the power of words. Yeah. And words can create life and words can can draw people to insurrection. And and we often don't consider that. We consider them cheap because they're plentiful. You know, mm. there's enough text everywhere to go around, but we often consider words to be very cheap and ineffective when in fact... They are very powerful. But I love that you talked about getting to know the heart of the poet as well, because one of the things I love about the podcast you host on On Being, the uh, Poetry Unbound, is that there is a poem featured, but you also talk about the poet themselves, because that context, the last time you were on the podcast, we talked about the hunger. You wanted to get at the hunger of the poet. And to get at that hunger is to know the person. And so what I love so much about Poetry Unbound is that you get to the heart of the poet. Have you, what have you noticed, have you seen any transformation in yourself as you've immersed yourself in not only the poetry of the people you featured, but also just their lives and who they are as they write? Um. You know, I do attribute my curiosity about the poet and about all of their work, not just about the one poem of theirs that I like or that I'm going to use. Or, um, I do attribute that to a, a training in theology. Um, I suppose anybody who has seen the abuses that can be done by taking a text and using that text without its context, um, that that can be profoundly abusive. And even when it's not abusive, it can also be impoverishing. Um, you know, I was, I'm not anymore, but I certainly was involved with lots of um, deeply conservative Christian communities when I was younger. And um, when you're, especially when you're younger, people are always quoting various texts to you. That one from Timothy about being future leaders or something like that, you know, though you were young, I can't remember what it says. And you know that you're growing older when people stopped quoting that text at you. <laughs> then there's the one from Jeremiah where they say, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and plans to, you know, that one. And I remember studying the prophet Jeremiah in my undergrad and realizing 
that um, was a letter, that's a quote that he wrote to the exiles in Babylon in a letter that he sent them. He hadn't been taken in exile to Babylon. He sent a letter to them saying, work in the land that you've been exiled into. Work for its prosperity. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and to bring you peace. The people hated him for that letter. Uh, a death threat was taken out for, on him. And so it isn't that I've ever heard that text, I know the plans I have for you, being used in an abusive way. It's that the richness of the text in the context of where it sits in a body of work, that that had not been presented. And when I read that, I thought, my God, I can never hear this text again. This is a, this is a quote from a letter that a man who in a certain sense was filled with grief himself that he hadn't been deemed important enough to be exiled because the people who were taken into exile in Babylon were the artists and the diplomats. The, the Babylonians had this habit of taking who they saw were the cream of the crop into, into exile and leaving what they saw as the dross. Jeremiah is the dross. And so he's half jealous and he's discerning words from the God he's writing about. And he uses these words. And I always want to know with a poem I'm reading, where does that sit in the work of the poet, in the book that it's been put in? Um, and where also does that book sit in the life of the poet? I'm utterly uninterested in gossip. I, I don't want to know anything about them. I don't care anything about um, the, the privacies of the poet's life. But I want to know the circumstances of the poet's life. Mm. Um, what, what happened to them? What... Um, what is the narration of their life? When did they live? Where did they live? Did they write this poem or this book during a time of grief? Or was this put together after they died or what? If they arranged how the book looks, does this sit at the front of the book or the back? What's on the poem next to it or the poem on the other side? Um, not because that gives you keys to say, I know exactly what the poem means, but I want to know where the poem is in the population of the life and of the work of the poet. So, like, whenever I get interested in a poet, I um, tend to read all of their work, which does mean that I end up reading a lot. So I had loved Emily Dickinson's work for, for a number of years and thought, I'm going to start reading her work. Um, so then I thought, well, I'll start in as much as you can at the start, because, you know, people are arranging her poems according to their best scholarship in a chronological order. And I thought it would take me two year, a year to read through her work, and it took two and um, I understood less of her at the end than I did at the start, but I loved her work more than I ever could have imagined. We have the, the context of the poet and then the context of the reader. And you talked about reading Emily Dickinson and feeling like you were in a conversation. But as much as Emily or any poet brings to the poetry their own world, we bring our own world to the reading of it. And that's part of what I wanted to do today and part of what you do in, in Poetry Unbound is this time of pandemic, those of us who read poetry and are engaged by it and inspired by it and allow ourselves to be opened up to it, this time of pandemic has been a time where I, I don't know about anyone else. I've been searching for uh, finding poems that are touchstones, that are encouraging, that are strengthening that are challenging, you know, that just have that richness and life specifically for a time when there's a lot of unsteadiness and uncertainty and, 
And so I thought today, um, listeners will know this is a little different. I thought, wouldn't it be cool just to do kind of a, a little bit of what you do on Poetry Unbound and share some of the poems that we've found powerful or potent or helpful during this period. And uh, so I don't know where to start. You're, you're the one who does this podcast on a regular basis. I, I, part of me wants to ask you to start, but I, I also don't want to be an ungracious host and not go first. <laughs> yeah, no, you go first. I'm curious. Well, the, the one, the book that I began reading and really um, at the beginning, really, of the pandemic was uh, Love Poems to God by Rilke. And I had not read it yet. And I would love to give the titles to each of the poems, but I am not great in Hungarian, Austro-Hungarian, German Do- language. So <laughs> Deutsch, yeah. So I am not going to even attempt. The titles of each poem are um, are basically the first line of the poem, but but this one is one that that stood, and I've I've come back to it over and over again. So I'll just read that. You see, I want a lot. Maybe I want it all. The darkness of each endless fall the shimmering light of each ascent. So many are alive who don't seem to care. Casual, easy, they move in the world as though untouched. But you take pleasure in the faces of those who know they thirst. You cherish those who grip you for survival. You are not dead yet. It's not too late to open your depths by plunging into them and drink in the life that reveals itself quietly there. Hmm. For me, there was just so much of, there was so much movement in that poem that it, it draws into, it draws you into a bit of darkness and then points to that darkness as the place where the source of life is coming from. And that felt so relevant uh, because it was easy to get caught up in headlines and concerns and what, what's going to happen to our jobs and what's going to happen to this and to that. And it, it, this poem just kept bringing me back to, you're not dead yet and it's not too late. There is this, this life that reveals itself, but reveals itself quietly. And that, that, that aspect of the the goodness and the generative things are most often very quiet and very below the surface. Uh, so it was really helpful to just continue to bring me back to that. And Rilke has, it has influenced so many people and has written so many beautiful poems. And the one about widening, I live in widening circles, that is probably the one of the best known. But this just this I just kept feeling resonance with this present moment, uh, even to the point of saying so many are alive who don't seem to care. Um, that line is so matter of fact for someone who I mean, the rest of it has so much lyricism to it. That's a very direct and feels like it's a very cutting kind of line, but it it's a it felt like it was a shock to the system for me to kind of grab my attention and and bring me towards that. I, so that that was really important early mm-hmm. on in the pandemic for me. He wrote that poem toward um, kind of the autumn time 
1899. And it felt like, it feels like when you read the Book of Hours, that um, as he sees this coming century, that he has nothing as um, easy to describe as a foretelling, but that he has some kind of intuition that the century that's coming is going to be a burdensome one. Mm. You know, um, you've got World War One and World War Two. You've got terrible wars happening. You've got horrific ways that humanity demonstrates its capacity for inhumanity. Um, and that book, I think, is is seeing the coming of the storm so often and trying to address a you in the storm. But he addresses a you who uh, sometimes seems like God and it's written to God. But with these lines like, um, you're not dead yet. My God, like, who is he writing to? Right. Um, and his the pain that he seems to be intuiting um, to read it, you know, 120 years later, we go, you were right. Um, terrible things were going to happen mm. to millions of families as a result of what was about to be unleashed in the 20th century. Yeah. And it, it's ushered in by these poems that he wrote a whole bunch of them in a great burst um, in, I think it was September and October of 1899. Yeah. Mm. And the You're Not Dead Yet moment this is what I love about poetry is it's it's the idea and I think this is a rabbinic Jewish rabbinic idea of turning the gem that when you look at scriptures or or texts and you can turn the gem and there are different refractions of light Hmm. there's the you're not dead yet that's almost like the morning conversation looking in the mirror sort of getting your energy up there is the is it a Nietzschean kind of thing looking to God and saying you're not dead yet even though around me there's this this chorus that says God has abandoned us as well, uh, and there are other refractions that we can see, yeah. but that that's just so powerful. All right, Padraig, your turn. <laughs> um, this is a this is a challenging poem. It's not long, but it's a poem that issues challenge. Um, it's written by Lorna Goodison, um, who uh, up until earlier on, or up until. 2020 was the Poet Laureate of Jamaica. She had had that post for, um, I think, three years. Um, She's an extraordinary poet. And this is a poem called Reporting Back to Queen Isabella. And it's about Christopher Columbus Mm. uh, called Don Cristobal, um, an Italian man who was being supported and paid by the Spanish government. When Don Cristobal returned to a hero's welcome, his caravels corked with treasures of the new world. He presented his findings, told of his great adventures to Queen Isabella, whose speech set the gold standard for her nation's language. When he came to Jamaica, he described it so, the fairest isle that eyes ever beheld. Then he balled up a big sheet of parchment, unclenched and let it fall off a flat surface before it landed at her feet. There we were, massives, 
high mountain ranges, expansive plains, deep valleys, one he'd christened for the Queen of Spain. Overabundance of wood, over 100 rivers, food and fat pastures for Spanish horses, men and cattle. And yes, Your Majesty, there were some people. Um, I, I love this poem. I, I can't count the amount of times I've read it in the last year. As we hear about this global pandemic, we, we think in a certain sense about the globe. You know? And I have been struck over and over again by the way within which I've heard from friends in um, India, friends in Kenya, friends in Malaysia, friends in Canada, friends in Australia, New Zealand, and people are all talking about what's happening for you regarding COVID. It's become this um, lingua in a certain sense. Obviously, different different things are happening in different places. Um, and there's a kind of a correlation, I think, oblique maybe, between that and the imagination that an empire could own a world. <laughs> that desire of empire to own, you know, from the sunrise to the sunset. You know, you heard about the British Empire, the sun never went down on it. Um, as if that's something to boast of, <laughs> you know. We we have annihilated peoples through wars, genocides, the eradication of language, culture and systems of governance. Mother of God, what's that supposed to be, a boast? Mm. And what you hear here is Lorna Goodison imagining herself in the role of the narrator describing um, Christopher Columbus coming back with with all kinds of pomp describing what he has discovered. What a terrible word. It was already there. It didn't need to be discovered um, in terms of this place. And you see also the complicity of administration in it because there's toward the end of it, you hear this line, um, there we were, massives, high mountain ranges, expansive plains, deep valleys, one he'd christened for the Queen of Spain, overabundance of wood, over 100 rivers, food and fat pastures for Spanish horses, men and cattle. That, um, that cartography couldn't have happened without people who would have just said, I was just drawing a map. Like I wasn't taking part in genocide. I was just drawing a map. That's all I was doing. I'm trained in cartography. Yep, there I was. And I was just counting the rivers and I was just doing this and I was just doing that. You know, I wasn't there imagining the annihilation of peoples and ways of life and languages. No, no, no. I was just there doing my job. Don't blame me. And you see that empire and war and murder has always built on people who say, I was just doing what I was doing. I was in the corner. I wasn't at the center. But history judges you by who you're associated with rather than did you pull the trigger? And I think that is a, a stark warning um, as we think about complicities. interesting to me too that the entire the entirety of the poem is devoted to 
commodities. <laughs> and yeah. then one line for the people. I know. And That's yes, right. Her Majesty. I come back. People. I come back to you know, the root of the word politics, and you love semantics, so you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but there's the root of politics is, is polity, it's people. Mm. It's, a, it's the heart of that, and then from a Christian tradition, the heart of being a follower of Jesus is loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's the heart of it is people, and how quickly... How, how easy colonization of all types is once we switch people for commodities. Mm. And I feel, like, I feel like that has happened a bit in the middle of this pandemic. The stories people are telling are about the loss of commodities rather yeah. than the loss of, of people. And, and no one would say, well, it's fine that all these people, quote unquote, have died. But what they will say is, but think about how, think about the markets. Or think about this, and and I'm not diminishing job loss, but we do quickly flip from people to commodities when it serves us. And th- yeah. you, there's all sorts of evil that's possible if you're willing to trade those things. I know. And valuing different categories of people, um, which obviously, the you know, 2020 in the United States was another example of something that has been ongoing for hundreds of years in terms of the value of um, black lives and then the value of um, white lives. Um, And in the early stages and probably on an ongoing level in the pandemic, you saw that um, black people in Britain and Ireland, black people in the United States um, were highlighting the lack of accessibility to treatment. Um, When numbers were being quoted um, on the radio, Certainly I heard at the start people saying, oh, you know, today there were 60 deaths, um, 20 of whom had underlying conditions. And then they'd move on as if somehow that explained a way to go. Well, so we only need to count the 40 then. Um, I've got very bad asthma. <laughs> so technically I have an underlying condition. And um, I definitely wouldn't have wanted to have been kind of spoken of in terms of a an underlying condition um, uh, approach. And I, I don't think were I, um, I don't think were I um, 75 or 85, I would care for that kind of reference either. Um, yeah, the way people speak about, you know, older people or seniors or people in nursing homes um, on the BBC, certainly for a while, um, the numbers of dead were given in terms of the number of people who died in hospitals and the number of people who died in nursing homes. And um, I just felt like that was corrupt <laughs> to, to, to make such a distinction. And I don't think it was being done for the sake of clarity. I felt like it was being done for the sake of, of value or um, speaking about the unex- speaking about ex- people who are expecting to die anyway mm. and then people who um are whose deaths we weren't expecting who's the we there who 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 sets the tone for those expectations i found that to be really um disturbing it does have the ring of yes your majesty there were some people yeah yeah She's a great poet, Lorna Goodison. Has she? Have you featured her on the Poetry Unbound program yet? 
um, for either season three or four, we will be featuring this very poem, actually. Mm. Oh, wonderful. Well, I, the, I would love to offer a longer one here. Um, and, and this is by Wendell Berry. So for people who don't know, Wendell Berry is an American essayist, novelist, poet, agrarian he runs a a farm in uh, kentucky that continues to operate on horses and plows um, has probably been one of the foremost voices on what we do as a country with food what we do with um, each other uh, actually wrote an essay called what are people for that i think is just compelling but he has a, a series of books of poetry that are called Sabbath poems, and they're basically constructed from his Sunday walks. And this one is one that I've always found to be moving and compelling. And I, and I come back to it all the time, but especially during the pandemic. And uh, this is from volume, the Sabbath poems of 1979 to 1997. And this is just numbered four. So this is poem number four. The bell calls in the town where forebearers cleared the shaded land and brought high daylight down to shine on field and trodden road. I hear, but understand contrarily, and walk into the woods. I leave labor and load, take up a different story. I keep an inventory of wonders and uncommercial goods. I climb up through the field that my long labor has kept clear. Projects, plans unfulfilled waylay and snatch at me like briars. For there is no rest here where ceaseless effort seems to be required, yet fails, and spirit tires with flesh, because failure and weariness are sure in all that mortal wishing has inspired. I go in pilgrimage across an old fenced boundary to wildness without age where, in their long dominion, the trees have been left free. They call the soil here Eden, slants and steeps hard to stand straight up on, even without a burden. No more a perfect garden, there's an immortal memory that it keeps. I leave work's daily rule and come here to this restful place where music stirs the pool and from high stations of the air fall notes of wordless grace, strewn remnants of the primal Sabbath's hymn. And I remember here a tale of evil twined with good, serpent and vine, and innocence as evil's stratagem. I let that go a while, for it is hopeless to correct by generation's toil, and I let go my hopes and plans that no toil can perfect. There is no vision here but what is seen. White bloom nothing explains but a mute blessedness exceeding all distress. The fresh light stained a hundred shades of green. Uproar of wheel and fire that has contained us like a cell opens and lets us hear a stillness longer than all time where leaf and song fulfill the passing light. Pass with the light. Return, renewed as in a rhyme. This is no human vision subject to our revision. 
God's eye holds every leaf as light is worn. Ruin is in place here, the dead leaves rotting on the ground. The live leaves in the air are gathered in a single dance that turns them round and round. The fox cub trots his almost pathless path, as silent as his absence. These passings resurrect a joy without defect, the life that steps and sings in ways of death. I think at the beginning of the lockdown in the United States, one of the challenges was a lot of the things that we were doing were taken. So that active part Mm. of us uh, disappeared. And what was revealed, um, and I knew some, but I was, it was revealed to me so much more, how much we find our identity in what we do. And yet in this, this ancient text, uh, we have this call to maintain a day that is separate for ceasing. And so that seems like an overbearing law until reading through this poem, the ceasing actually has, has a cost to it. And so mm-hmm. a forced ceasing for an entire country, I think everyone started to, I heard friends talking about, well, we spend more time together as a family now. And I, those who, you know, could do that. Um, and I didn't realize how, how busy I was and, you know, how quickly we accumulate things. And if we are never f- if we're never invited or never choose to cease, we don't see the amount of energy they drain from us. And Barry just constantly reminds that line of, I keep an inventory of wonders and uncommercial goods. You know, I'm keeping track of the things that can't be measured or bought, mm-hmm. but they're experiences and they are, they are beauties and they are, you know, distinctions. And how that is just... The rest of the poem just bounces through uh, the ancient texts of the Hebrew scriptures. And you hear references to all sorts of things, but it's, it's him processing what we can process when those briars of un, unfinished plans are sort of set aside and we allow ourselves to, it's a contemplative poem, I think. It's one that just invites us to stop and to think. And I'm always, that's always been a great, it's always been a beautiful poem to me, but even more so uh, when I had this forced, uh, you know, forced shutdown, forced lockdown to sit with it and really live in it uh, without necessarily having an option to, to step away from it. And Barry's connection with the land, I think, is also important because as in the poem you shared, it, he is trying to flip back to not only away from commodities, but towards not only people, but also the land on which we live and the sacredness of creation as well. So that, that, has just, that poem just sustains me in ways that I, I probably don't even know yet. But Are you familiar it's with Wendell Berry? A little bit, yeah. Um, Krista did a, an interview with a scholar um, Ellen Bass, who's a, a theologian, and she had taken a particular agricultural reading of the book of Genesis. And the interview that Krista had with Ellen 
um, they interspersed the interview with um, recordings that Wendell Berry had done for that program of him reading his own poems. So that was my introduction to him. Um, I haven't read a lot, but I, it's just hearing that poem. You see his attention and capacity to notice and to watch and to see um, and to not always, but very regularly hold back from um, telling you what this means, but just to keep you seeing. You see this, you see that, um, and you see life and death happening in the same lines or certainly the same stanzas. And that is a very accurate looking at nature. Mm. Nature is all about life and death. Of course it is. Um, uh, it's beautiful. Mm. So I'd love to have you share one more if you have one. Um, I've got a very interesting poem by um, a Kashmiri poet who lives in Ireland called Rafiq Katwari. And this is from his book In Another Country that was published by the Irish Poetry House, Dira Press. Um, it's, uh, it's got a, a longer title than the poem, so... On receiving father at JFK after his long flight from Kashmir. As I fling my arms wide, he extends his hand. Oh. <laughs> there are so many ways within which previous to 2020, you would have read that poem, you know, the, the slight formality of father, you know, rather than dad. And, you know, the title sets the whole thing up, you know, clearly the poet is at JFK airport waiting for his father to arrive on the long flight from Kashmir. Mm. Great. And then as I fling my arms wide, he extends his hand. You think of, is that a generational thing? Um, is that a private thing? Maybe the father wanted to hug and kiss his son, but maybe not in public. Or maybe he was worried about being tired or... You know, you smell after a long flight. Maybe it was, I don't see it as the withholding of love. I see it as a form of love. Um, uh, you know, or, or I see the possibility that this poem could mean so many things, which isn't just about an affectionate son and a, and a, a standoffish father. You know, um, it can mean so many things. But then um, 2020, a long flight fling my arms wide, what, what I wouldn't give for lots of handshakes, you know. Mm. Um, there are all kinds of ways within which this brilliant poem um, has taken on all kinds of new resonances. On receiving father for, at JFK after his long flight from Kashmir, as I fling my arms wide, he extends his hand. It's, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> it, it creates a... It feels like there's a he creates a space. Is there's now a pregnant moment where you know the part of us that loves to watch the next episode of a television show or a <laughs> streaming show. You get, so what did he do? So what did happened? did dad know. did dad you know submit to the? Did they hug later on? What happened? But I it know. is that pause of human relationships where you know there's a there's a risk. There's yeah. a risk and a vulnerability in the sun. Totally. Yeah. And and perhaps nothing more than a privacy in the father. Um, 
I did a reading of that with some people and somebody said, oh, you know, the imprisonment of certain men and their incapacity to show love. And I thought, I, I, I understand why you're saying that, but I'm not sure that that's the only way to interpret the extension of a hand. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, I think there could be all kinds of reasons going on why a person in that context, after a long flight in a very public place, um, chooses to be... Um, chooses to be a little bit more contained in themselves. Who knows what, what the level of affection might have been when they got home. Certainly, however, the poet Rafi Katwari has isolated this moment. So you do feel like he's saying that maybe this is a doorway into a relationship. So maybe there is a certain sense of imprisonment in a, in a, in a you know, conserving your own space and not reaching out from it, but also maybe not. I don't know. I, I think it's a brilliant poem because you can talk about this poem um, for a year <laughs> and still be finding new things in it. And that line, the line of the poem is just one line. It's not staggered down on the page like it's a, a, a narrow verse. It's just one line across the page. So the page is so empty mm-hmm. in that book. Um, I really enjoyed the book. It won the Patrick Kavanagh Award, um, which is a big Irish award for poetry a bunch of years back. Um, and I really enjoyed the whole book, but this was the one that I couldn't stop thinking about. It is. It contains that beautiful, the thing that I love most about poetry, and and it's a thing that shapes our relationships and our faith and everything that we do. Is that it just invites you to to slow down and sit with it, mm-hmm. and be present yeah. to it. And so, whether you think the father is an imprisoned male figure or whether you, it's something else, you're, you're just invited to sit with that. So what does that mean? Yeah. For you, after, as we move into the, you know, the, the pre-dawn hours of 2021, do you sense a way in which your poetry, your approach to writing poetry or, you know, reading poetry or engaging with it will be different as a result of the past year that we've gone through? Um, uh, yes, but probably not because of the past year. It's more because of grief. Um, uh, one of the people I loved most in the world died um, in June. He was uh, 55. Um, I'd known him since I was 11. And so, um, yeah, his daughter phoned and said her dad was dead. Um and that was terrible uh, and still is really um and he and i he loved wendell berry and mary oliver and um both he and i uh, loved nature poetry uh, and he used to say to me we were on a work trip together a few years ago and he said why don't you write nature poetry and i was like i don't have any insights into it i don't have any in- inroads um, I, it's not that I didn't want to write it. It's just that I thought I would be, um, I would be lying. I wouldn't have the, the emotional door to open. Um, and I mean, I grew up in the countryside, so and cycled all the time in the countryside. So, like, I'm not somebody who's a kind of an urban kid. Um, uh, anyway, for in lockdown, I've been in the countryside. Um, and, you know, it's the longest I've been in one place for 20 years, 25 years, probably. Um, and 
we regularly would, we, we would talk most days on the phone about some work things. He worked for Corey Mila, Glenn did. But always, every phone call would talk to about what birds you sing out the back or what can you see out the window, you know. He phoned me up the day that the goldfinches came back um, just to say they're back because he was talking about goldfinches and the day that I saw a bullfinch or when there was hares in the back garden, I, you know, sent him photographs. Anyway, after he died, um, I, with, with time, found myself needing to write to him and about him. And I found this door open into these conversations with him that I was missing about birds. Hmm. Um, those weren't done in order to fulfill a project of writing nature poetry. Those were done out of a deep belief, deep grief and uh, a love that's deeper than I have words for to continue on a conversation with a friend I miss. Hmm. So, uh, and a different kind of loss uh, 100% different. At the end of 2020, um, I um, lost four years of data from my computer and my backup. Um, both the computer and the backup oh. failed. And so um, I lost a lot of poems. Most poems I had sent out to friends to have a look at and go, what do you think of that? Or what do you think of that? So um, I could recover those from the sent items. But every talk I've given for four years, all the all the notes are gone. And um, yeah chapters of books and, and some some poems that I hadn't sent out to anybody. Um, and that also brought about uh, two things at the same time. One, deep shock, <laughs> disbelief, what? Um, and um, two, this awful, but nonetheless um, presenting blank slate mm. for writing. And um, I, I've been writing a lot of different kind of things since then too. So, um, yeah. So I, I think those are the things for me about 2020. I, I always think that um, there, is idea, there is our idea about what the kind of thing we'll write will be. And then there is the experience of being yourself and needing to write what is true according to what you're able to see in the moment when you're writing and the era, the season, the year when you're writing. And the present moment, I think, always calls us into some kind of conversation with the present moment you're living through, as well as the art you're trying to create on the page if you're a writer. And so, um, yeah, I think 2020 has done that for me, certainly. Mm -hmm. I would gladly burn all that poetry for the possibility of those griefs not to be there. But there we are. Yeah. <laughs> well, my, my prayer is that you will be blessed with a, a good grief and that at the end of it, uh, there will be a resurrection of whatever kind is needed. It seems like every time something, something dies, something new comes to life and that is a hopeful thing. It's a very hopeful thing. Thanks for being a guest again, Padraig. It's uh, nice to be with you, Casey. I, I enjoy this so very much, and mm -hmm. my hope is that people will start reading poetry, and yours mm -hmm. or others, uh, but specifically yours. I'll, I'll include some oh. links where people can get started reading no, some of your poems. Much. So. Mm -hmm. Blessings, my friend. Thanks very much, Casey.
Padraig is one of those people that I could spend hours talking with. And I, I pray, I really pray that you were able to find a connection point in some of the poems that we shared. Poetry has been extremely important for me, and, and anytime I'm talking with anyone, I want to invite them to, to dive in. And poetry changes. We have to read it differently. We have to slow down. We have to savor the words. But that's, that is something that I think we all could, could use. And Padraig's poetry is a great place to start. Uh, some of his books, Sorry for Your Troubles, uh, or his book In the Shelter, are great places to begin with his poetry. Padraig Otuma is a poet and a theologian, and his work centers around themes of language, power, conflict, and religion. He presents a podcast called Poetry Unbound that is in partnership with On Being Studios, if you're familiar with Krista Tippett. Uh, that is her uh, studio group, and he produces this uh, wonderful brief but powerful podcast called Poetry Unbound, where in a lot of ways he does what we did in this episode. In late 2019, he was named theologian in residence for On Being, and he's continuing to innovate and bring art and theology into public and civic life. He's done TEDx talks. He His, his poetry is internationally acclaimed. Um, he's won several awards and he's done work in both theology and poetry and prose. And you can find any of his work uh, on his website, which you can find in the show notes. So please check that out. It will be well worth your time. If you're listening on any of the platforms, iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, thank you so much for doing that. If you're streaming on my website, thank you for doing that as well. Please rate and review the podcast so that I know uh, how things are going and uh, can make changes if needed. Uh, if, you're, if you're streaming on my website and you'd like to see more information, uh, a weekly blog post and some other things that I have coming out, you can subscribe there as well. But in the meantime, may you find poetry that connects with you, that gives you the words to talk about things that you don't have the words to talk about in this day, in this place, so that the God who created the world with words might be more apparent and more present to you and to those around you. Until next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. <laughs>